All right. Well, if you'll turn in a copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 1243. 1243. This morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 uh, through 21. But before we read, let's go to the Lord and ask Him for His help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that it is true and that it is active in our hearts by the Spirit, that it is inerrant, it is without error. We pray, Father, that in these next few moments as we look at it, that you would, by your Spirit, help the preacher and hearer alike. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Paul, the apostle, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, gives us a glimpse of what life was like for uh, his season in ministry after the Lord converted him on the road to Damascus. And it wasn't an easy life. It was not an easy life. We find there that he'd been shipwrecked three times. Once he'd been left adrift at sea. He'd been beaten with rods, and five times he had been whipped 39 times. He had been without food often, and frequently he was cold due to exposure through sleepless nights. Paul's ministry was one of great hardships. And yet in that passage, he ends that passage with perhaps the, the greatest hardship, the greatest load and burden that he buried Uh, Barry, bore, (laughs) in verse 28. And apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In Paul's three known missionary journeys, he might have had a fourth, but we have no record in Scripture of it. In his three missionary journeys, he planted churches. He strengthened them and taught and evangelized. And when he left them physically... They didn't leave his heart. As he planted more churches, as he met more people, he added more people to his prayer list that he was constantly remembering before the throne of God, day in and day out, lifting them up before God that he might strengthen them and help them. This was especially true, I think, of the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus, a place where he spent somewhere between two and a half and three years ministering and planting that church. And and he would even make a special trip at the end of his third missionary journey to go and to see the elders one more time before he left 
back for Jerusalem thinking that they would never see each other again. That's how much he loved these folks. In this text, we have what's called a prayer report. As Paul is in prison in Rome at this point, he has continued to be in prayer for them. And he writes this letter for many reasons. One of the reasons is to encourage them and to remind them of his love for them, of God's love for them, and his constant prayers on their behalf. We might say we see a report of Paul's pastoral prayer on behalf of his dear friends, his brothers and sisters in Christ at the Ephesian church. What does he pray for? He prays for things that we would do well to pray for in our own lives as well and for our friends and family, for spiritual strength, to understand the love and presence of Christ more and more, and to become more spiritually mature. Paul begins his prayer in verse 14, where he tells us that he has been praying for the Ephesians. He had started in 3 verse 1 with this line of reasoning. But in verse 2 through 13, he has a bit of an aside. And now he's returning back to how he began in verse 1 of chapter 3. There he tells us that he is a prisoner of the Romans for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. He is going before the Father because of what he has said in verse 12, that he and we have bold access with confidence before our heavenly Father. And Paul was bold to pray to the Father on their behalf. We read here in uh, in verse 14 that he would bow his knees. Now we think this is a very common way of prayer, right? We talk about bowing before the Lord. But in those days, that's not how they did things. This is a strange thing that Paul would say. In those days, the way that you normally prayed was to raise your hands and keep your eyes open and look up to the sky. That's how you would pray. But Paul says here that his prayers are so fervent for the Ephesians that he prostrates himself before God, begging and pleading on their behalf. There are a lot of ways here that he could refer to God, God, the Lord. Lots of ways we could talk about the Lord. What's the word he uses? It's a very important one. He is bowing before the Father, focusing on the relationship that we as Christians have with the God of the universe who has made all things. That he is not just the one who created us, but the one who has redeemed us and given us the right to become children of God. Have you ever seen your child or your grandchild be a tattletale. You ever seen this before? And they come running to you. Why do they come running to you? Well, the first thing is that you have a relationship with them, okay? You're their father or mother, some relationship to them. And so they know that you're going to listen to them. But secondly, you have a relationship to the other person, the one who is being told on. In our household, it's Thomas and Lizzie. You know, the other one has a relationship to us. We're their parents too. There's that shared relationship. But, But three, they know that you have the power to do something about it. Now, Paul certainly isn't being a tattletale here. But these three things are at play. Paul and the Ephesians share a relationship together. 
Paul goes to his father as one whom he knows will listen to him. And he brings up the things that his brothers and sisters are facing. And his brothers and sisters have a father too. And it's the same father as Paul. That third thing is so important too. He goes to the father knowing that he is able to do something about the challenges that they face. We see this brought up here when we read that uh, God is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There's a Greek wordplay going on here. The word family and father sound alike in the Greek. And so he is going to the one who has created all things. Only believers in Christ can call him father as one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But everyone, no matter if they're believers or not, a rock or a Pharisee or a, you know, whatever it is, whatever is in this world, everything comes from our father. He is sovereign over all things and he is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or even imagine. And so he goes to the one who can do something about it. Paul here is praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ because of their shared relationship they have together as God is their Father and because He can do something about it. What a privilege it is as as believers in Christ to bring before our Father our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we see people who are hurting, as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ as they have needs and have problems, what a delight it is to be able to go to our shared Father, the one who has demonstrated His love for me and for you because of what Christ has done for us, and to be able to call these things before the very throne of God that the Lord might act as a point of application, are you leaving place in your, in your prayers to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? You know, it's easy, I know it is in my life, to be so focused on my own needs that I can forget the needs of others. What a privilege we have to carry before the Lord not only our problems, but also those of our beloved. Paul begins in verse 16 telling us the content of his prayer. And he begins in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you that you be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. His first prayer is that God would strengthen them. Do you need spiritual strength this week? I know I do. Why in the world would Paul pray that God would strengthen the Ephesians? Well, if you'll remember when we began this great book, that Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And it is a place of a lot of magic, and it is a place of pagan worship, and all of the debauchery that goes along with it. It is a place that was special, special to Rome, and it had a special um, status as a colony. And as such, each year everyone was required to make a sacrifice to Caesar as Lord. And Christians couldn't do that. And it often led to them losing their jobs. They were facing great times of hardship and persecution. And on top of that, as Jews and Gentiles together from different cultures began to worship together in church, I imagine there were points of conflict there. They needed spiritual strength to deal what they were facing with on a day-to-day life. 
This is a great prayer for ourselves and for our families and our brothers and sisters in Christ that God would strengthen us with that great spiritual strength. Indeed, it's when we think we're strong in and of ourselves we get in trouble. Have you ever done that before? You think, I got this one. And then you fall flat on your face, right? That's the the most gracious thing that God can do to us when we think that we've got this thing. That great children's hymn, we are weak, but he is strong. We need God's strength to fight temptation, to obey, to trust in his promises, to be good fathers, mothers, and children, to forgive those who have sinned against us, and to continue to be prayer warriors, servants, elders, deacons, or those who struggle with sickness, mental illness, or the loss of loved ones. Y'all, there's not a thing in this world that we face that we can do on our own. We need God to strengthen us. He does this, Paul's prayer is, that God would strengthen the Ephesians according to the riches of His glory. There is a difference, as we've talked about, between giving from your riches and according to your riches. If you have five bajillion dollars and you come up to somebody and say, I really want to bless you. I've got a lot of money and I want to give you some. And you hand over a one dollar bill. You're not giving according to your riches. You're giving from your riches. But if you come up to somebody and say, I'm going to give you a million dollars, a brand new yacht, and a nice vacation home, you're giving according to the measure of what you have been given. God gives spiritual strength according to His riches. He is rich in strength. And to all those who turn to Him, He gives according strength. How does he do this? He does it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies to us all the benefits of our redemption and the promises that God has made to us. And he does this in our inner being. He doesn't strengthen us in our biceps or our deltoids. He strengthens us in our souls, who we are on the inside. How does he do this? Practically, if we desire for God's strength, spiritual strength, as we face the, the, the trials and hardships, the hard times and the challenges that everyday life brings, just even raising children or taking care of your older parents or, or dealing with health issues, how do we do that? How do we get that strength? The Bible's real clear that, that God gives us strength Through the Spirit, in our inner selves, in our souls, primarily through the Word, the sacraments, and prayer. If you desire, if we desire to be strengthened for the day ahead, then we must begin with spending time with the Lord Jesus. If we desire to have His strength, we must go to Him in prayer. And in the context of the church, come to the table. This is where He strengthens us. We are weak and we will fail every time if we rely on our own strength. I know my life is full of evidences of that. But when we rely on Him, He gives us strength. What a great prayer. The Lord would give us spiritual strength. Paul builds here in his pastoral prayer as he heads to a second request. That we might have spiritual strength so that, in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does he mean by that? I thought if we're Christians that Christ already dwells in our hearts by faith. He's not talking about salvation here. 
Christ dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit if we are Christians. What he's talking about here is that Christ may dwell more and more in our hearts. His prayer is that Christ's influence, priorities, and love might have more and more of a controlling power in our lives. If we think about our hearts and our minds as a a house, um, as I think about my mind throughout the day as a house, there are a lot of unwelcome visitors that come by, aren't there? And sometimes I meet them at the door and say, you're not welcome here. And sometimes I crack the door open a little bit and say, hey, how you doing? Sometimes I invite those unhelpful thoughts in, those, those strangers into the house that is my mind and that is my heart. And sometimes I entertain them on the couch for a few minutes. I'm sorry, you got to go, you got to go, go. I shouldn't have invited you in. And sometimes I say, hey, why don't you take your, your shoes off and stay a while? May Christ dwell in my heart so much and dwell in your heart and so much as we are filled up with spiritual strength, as we are so focused on Him that when we open that door and those trespassers, those foreign visitors, those, those ones who should not be there, as they look around and they see Jesus sitting on the sofa, they say, I'm, I'm out of here. That we would not entertain those sorts of thoughts and intentions if their name tag says bitterness or lack of forgiveness, or lust, or covetousness, that Christ would dwell so richly in our hearts by faith, there wouldn't be room for anything else. See, we've already been rooted and grounded in love, according to 17b. This is really an aside that Paul has. It's it's not that so that we would be rooted and grounded in love, it's that we already are. The Greek literally says that you having been rooted and having been grounded in love, something that has happened in the past with ongoing ramifications, that we have been rooted not in our love for God or our love for others. Because I don't know about you, but mine waxes and wanes. It comes and it goes. Some days it's strong. Some days it's weak. That's a terrible thing to root anything in. But rooted in God's love for us. I love these two images that Paul uses here. The first is an agricultural one, and it's the idea of being rooted down deep in the soil of of God's love. I worked in the yard yesterday. We were working in a um, flower bed right by our back door, and and it just had a ton of monkey grass. And we said, okay, we're going to start completely over. Monkey grass is really hard to get rid of. Have you ever dealt with this stuff? I started with the weed eater, just getting everything level to the ground. And I said, I'm going to get the weed eater and I'm just going to keep digging down into the ground and just get, you know, start chewing up all these roots. You know, that didn't work. And I got out the hoe. Hoeing's hard work, isn't it? And I started digging at those roots and pulling them out. And I had this pile just full of monkey grass roots. And I know there's got to be more down in there. May my heart be so rooted and grounded in God's love like monkey grass that you just can't get it out of it. It's not like the sandy soil of whatever we often seek to root and ground ourselves in, like other people's opinions or success at work or the success of our children in sports or academics. We root and ground ourselves in all sorts of things that will fail us every time. Because the other word here is grounded, and it's the word not only for the foundation, but for the soil that is under the foundation. You know, the soil that is under the foundation is really important. I grew up in Montgomery where everybody's foundation is cracked, 
right? We had that soil that it, it, at some point it's not a matter uh, if, but, but when. This idea of grounded in God's love is not just the foundation. He is our foundation. He is our cornerstone. But the love is the ground even underneath the foundation. And we as God's people have been rooted and grounded in His love. This is where we find our identity and our meaning and our purpose. But when we look to other things, we get in a lot of trouble, don't we? This third prayer here is that we would and they would understand God's love more. Look at 18 through the beginning of 19. You may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This word comprehend means to lay hold of mentally, to take possession of mentally. That we might begin to understand the love that is not able to be understood, that surpasses knowledge. There are a lot of words in, in the New Testament for love. This is agape love. This is the love which is not dependent upon the object. So we have some fantastic flowers this morning provided by the Lukers. Isn't that right? They are really pretty. Um, And I love them. What if we had monkey grass? (laughs) I don't love monkey grass, especially today. But what if I said, I love those flowers? I love that monkey grass. It wouldn't be dependent upon the monkey grass, would it? Something else would have to be going on. God's love for us is not dependent upon us being lovely or good or perfect or put together, because, my friends, that never would happen. His is a love that surpasses knowledge, surpasses understanding. Why why does it surpass knowledge and understanding? Because it doesn't make any sense, not rationally speaking, that God would set His affections upon a person like me, that deserves not heaven, but hell forever. I deserve His wrath. But God has set His affections upon me and has loved me so much that He has sent His Son to die for me. And so He's going to use these words, breadth and length and depth and height, and He's so excited He forgets to put in the word love. If you look at that text, it says that you would know, understand, comprehend the the height and the depth, the breadth and the length. Blank. We all know it's talking about God's love. It's clear from the text. How could you measure God's love? How could you plumb the deep, deep love of Jesus? Boundless, vast, unmeasured, free. How do you measure running water with a cup if it keeps on coming? How do you measure air with a spoon when there's a constant wind? How can you count the grains of sand on a beach when every successive wave brings more and more? That's a good way of thinking about God's love. We need that strength to be reminded of His love for us. If we're Christians, He loves us greatly. And we need to be reminded of it daily. When we begin to let those thoughts come in, those visitors to the house that is our heart, that is our mind... If I'm more and more rooted and grounded in in Christ's love for me, if I begin to understand His love, then I will see those as folks who are vying for my love who don't deserve it, who are seeking to keep my attention off of my Savior. Because the fact is we need spiritual maturity. And that's 
That's the last part of his prayer. Verse 19b tells us that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we'll become gods. We talked about Mormon theology Wednesday night at uh, church. It was a rather interesting conversation. And if you'd like a CD of it called Glorious, she'll, she'll get you one. They believe you can turn into a god, and that's just not correct. We don't turn into a god. We don't turn into God. We are not filled with His nature. We are filled more and more with Christ. And we are filled more and more as we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more like our Savior. That's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. This is the goal of our walk with Jesus. That we might put to death the sin that is in our life. That we might fall more and more in love with Christ. That we might be made more and more to the image of our Savior, Jesus Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknow, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might, He might be the firstborn among many brothers. The Ephesian Christians hadn't been Christians all that long. And Paul knew they needed spiritual maturity. And so do we. So do we. The, the, the call to become a Christian is not just to be a convert, but a lifelong learner. A lifelong disciple. But what a dangerous prayer it is to pray that the Lord would grow you spiritually. Have you ever prayed for patience? That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because how does God teach you patience? He brings folks into your life that just drive you crazy. He brings you into situations where you have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And that's how God grows us spiritually, right? That throat us in the fire. To burn off the dross, to burn off the impurities, to make us more like Jesus. Oh, but what a wonderful promise it is. That as we grow, uh, that we will see more and more of His love for us. We'll be more and more conformed to the image of His Son. Now here's the thing, there's nothing about this that we can do ourselves. We can't pull up our bootstraps and just say, I'm going to be a better Christian now. That's not how it works. God's got to do the work. It takes effort on our part. We have to pursue Christ and His Word. We have to fight sin diligently. But ultimately, all those things are done not in our own strength, but in Christ's strength. And that's what's important about how He ends our text in this great doxology. Doxology is a... We, we sing it every Sunday. That's called a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, that's a doxology. That's a praise of God. That's all that means. Verses 20 and 21 are a doxology, a praise to God. And it says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. None of us can do this, but God can. God has taken wretches like us, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, Walking after the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He has taken us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and he has made us alive together with Christ. If he can do that, if he can take dead spiritually people like you and me and make us alive in Christ, he is going to continue to grow us more and more like his son. And it's not in our own strength, it's in his as we pursue his strength and pray for his strength and pray for spiritual maturity. How do we know this? Because He can do far more abundantly
than we could ever ask, or as one translation puts it, imagine. We serve a powerful God who is able to give us strength against temptation, who is able to get us out of the depths of addiction, who is able to restore poor and poisoned relationships, who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or even imagine. As we close, I want to ask, I was just in prayer this morning led to ask this question this morning. We've talked a lot about God's love. Um, what, if, what if you had to give account for your life this afternoon? I've closed most sermons with a phrase, a prayer, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. What if Christ came today? Would that be a good thing for you or a bad thing? Would you rejoice that our Savior is here? The one who is doing far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine in our hearts and we can't wait to see what heaven is going to be like? Or that be dread, that bring dread to your soul? Because you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not ready. The Bible tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It also says that today is the day of salvation. It says elsewhere, don't harden your hearts. My friends, do you know Jesus? This love which will be read is, we're talking about believers here. This text applies to those who love Christ. And have had their lives transformed by His grace. Does that apply to you? Does that define who you are? If not, today may you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ Jesus. As you, as you see the sin that you do, that it not is only a bad, but it grieves the Father. And it brings punishment upon me, upon you. But Christ has taken every bit of that upon the cross. Every bit of His wrath has been satisfied by Christ on the cross. That if we look to Christ and ask Him to forgive us, if we put our faith in Him as the one who has paid for our sins, then you can join me in that prayer as we honestly pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your great love for us. Lord, surely it surpasses all knowledge and understanding. Help us, Lord daily to understand a little bit more of it. That we who have been rooted and grounded in love might be grown more and more spiritually mature. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that day would come soon when you make all things new. Come Lord Jesus. Amen.